Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Chabura. Uh, for those here for the first time, uh, the Chabura is a virtual and physical Bet Midrash with over 300 students around the world dedicating to, dedicated to studying Mikra, Halakha, Machshava, and history through the lens of the classical Sefaradi Mesora. We are also a publishing house with a quarterly journal featuring essays from our teachers and students. And we are looking forward to publishing our first two books on Amazon in the next six months, Bezrat Hashem. If you'd like to find out more, please do visit thehabura.com to join our mailing list. <laughs> and for those listening on YouTube or our podcast, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and leave a comment or review. We move on to tonight. And tonight is where the world of Safarad meets the world of Ashkenaz, specifically the world of 19th century Ashkenazi Rav, Rabbi Shimshon Rafael Hirsch. Rabbi Hirsch was at the forefront of defending Ashkenazi orthodoxy in the face of reforming sects that had developed in Europe. And he was instrumental in shaping what we know today as the great modern orthodoxy. While there are differences between the modern orthodox and classical Sephardi schools of thought, there is a shared approach that leans towards integration, rationality, and coming to know HaKadosh Baruch Hu through his Torah and the world around it. This is why this series is an exciting opportunity for us to learn about a very special rabbi who epitomized much of that. We are honored to have a very special Ashkenazi Rav in his own right teaching us tonight, and that is Rabbi Dr. Alan Kimchi. Rabbi Kimchi studied in Israel for 10 years, attending Kol Torah and the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, learning with Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, Alava Shalom, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, Alava Shalom, and Rav Yoshua Neowitz, Alava Shalom. He later gained a PhD in philosophy and Jewish law from London University. Rabbi Kimchi served for 35 years as the founding rabbi of the Ne Israel community here in London, building it into one of the most successful modern Orthodox communities in Europe. Rabbi Kimchi and his wife, Via, made Aliyah in 2019. I was lucky enough to get to know Rabbi Kimchi when he was here in London, and I was even lucky enough to have him under my chuppah alongside our Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Dweck, uh, those six or seven years ago. I hope my wife's not listening. I think it was six. Uh, Rabbi Kimchi, you are sorely missed here in London, and I, I thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. Bechavod. Uh, thank you very much, Sina, for the very warm, warm welcome. I'm honored to be the uh, Ashkenazi representative in your Sfardi Beta Midrash. Um, I can say to you, though, that my name, Kimchi, here in Israel, is actually associ associated with the Sfardi origins. And indeed, uh, our family goes back to the Radak of David Kimchi in the 13th century, who certainly had strong Sfardi connections. So I might be able to call myself something of a hybrid uh, between the Ashkenaz and Sfard traditions. And that gives me maybe uh, an entry card into your uh, Chabura uh, program. Uh, let me say that I've been following uh, your program, and I think it's a wonderful innovation using technology to spread uh, ideas of, of Torah and Hashkafa and uh, a Jewish philosophy and authentic, uncompromised uh, Orthodox Judaism in a modern and imaginative way. And a big yashakar to you, Sinan, to Rabbi Dweck, and all the people who are behind uh, this program. Now, we're going to be looking at uh, a particular point in history, not because we are academic historians, but because studying key figures who were instrumental in shaping the future of Jewish life gives us an insight into our own Jewish life. 
the way the way Jews live today, the thoughts that we have and the practices that we have and the challenges that we have are very much a product of the way in which uh, Judaism evolved, particularly in the 19th century. The 19th century was a turning point in the history of European Jewry, particularly Ashkenaz Jewry, but it impacted heavily on the Sephardi community as well. And I need to give you a few minutes of context in order to understand uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch. Let me just say, Samson Raphael Hirsch was an Orthodox rabbi who lived from 1808 until 1888 and took a central role in strengthening and directing uh, the future of orthodoxy in Germany, but impacted uh, much, much wider uh, than Germany. In fact, impacted over the whole of Western Europe and eventually also into uh, to England, to the United States and Canada, South Africa, the whole English speaking world as well. But let me explain to you what was unique about this man and what was his real uh, contribution, uh, which was nothing, nothing short of uh, spectacular. Um, uh, the context here is that the Jewish people had been living in Europe uh, for many centuries through the Middle Ages up to say the year 1800 in a very, under very miserable conditions. They had no civil rights. They weren't citizens of countries. They couldn't have their own bank accounts. They couldn't own property. They couldn't employ non-Jews. They couldn't even often work with non-Jews. They were limited to a very small a selection of, uh, of money-earning activities. You could hardly call them professions. They couldn't go to universities, get diplomas. They couldn't study. They couldn't have access to any of the cultural activities of the, uh, say, the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the music and the literature of the countries in which they lived. They were banned from it all. And in fact, if, if they walked into a place where they weren't welcome, they could be beaten up and they had no recourse. They couldn't call the police because they had no civil rights at all. What happened starting in the year 1800, roughly, the, the combined effort uh, effects of what was generally called uh, the Enlightenment, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, um, the, 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 the modern, can you hear me? Is there a problem with the sound? The, uh, modernity brought with it, based often on the ideas of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and Napoleonic ideas brought a whole new way of understanding how society should be structured. A new atmosphere of tolerance uh, was slowly emerging, and slowly the Jewish people, were, the Jewish communities, uh, I'm focusing now for the time being on Western Europe, uh, were getting civil rights, and they were able to leave the ghetto, and they were able to integrate themselves into the non-Jewish world. And it's difficult for you to, it's difficult to overstate what an immense, uh, uh, power, immensely powerful experience this was for the entire community. Uh, it, for, for the first time, they could, they could uh, own property and live in houses outside of the few streets of the Jewish community. They could uh, apply to universities. They could learn German. They could go to the coffee houses and to the uh, and to the concert halls, they could be involved in studying in universities and become academics and civil servants. And the, the opportunities, commercial and social and intellectual opportunities, were dazzling, absolutely dazzling. 
And for an Orthodox Jew, um, what this meant was the following. He was being offered the most unbelievable new life, something which his parents and grandparents had never, could never even dream of. But the price he had to pay for it was to abandon Torah and mitzvahs. He, had, he couldn't go into uh, the university and keep Shabbos and Yontem. He couldn't go uh, and mix socially with the non-Jewish uh, bankers and businessmen and not eat uh, non-kosher food. He had to somehow get rid of all the uh, Torah and mitzvahs and, and assimilate into the non-Jewish world. And the, the, the wave of assimilation in the 19th century in Germany, in France, uh, and in Western Europe in general, was not, not so much a wave, more of a, a tsunami. It was a completely, so, so much so that there were many cities which, which 50 years previously had been centers of genuine Orthodox Torah and mitzvahs, where there was hardly a minion left of anybody who had any ideas uh, of, 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 of Jewish life. The, the, uh, um, if you wanted to advance yourself uh, uh, socially, the, the, the price you had to pay from a Jewish point of view was, was disastrous. And, the, and the, the challenge that faced all the Orthodox rabbis of Europe at the time was how to deal with modernity. What should be our response to modernity? And this was something which really separated uh, uh, Samson Rafael Hirsch from most of the other uh, uh, Orthodox rabbis of his time. Because most of the Orthodox rabbis of his time said, the answer is you have to completely shut down on modernity. Don't go to their universities. Don't speak German. Stay with Yiddish. Don't wear modern clothes. Don't go to their coffee houses. Don't go to their colleges. And you need to basically a policy of isolationism. Right? So on the one hand, you have this massive, overwhelming drive towards assimilation, and not just assimilation. It was also a, a conversion. In other words, there were lots of people who believed famously, there was, for example, a famous uh, uh, a poet and author in Germany called Heinrich Heiner, who lived in the 19th century, uh, who, who was born Jewish and brought up Jewish, but he, he got himself baptized. And he said publicly that his baptism was his entry permit into the non-Jewish world, into the academic world, into the world of... Pu no publisher would publish his works if he was a Jewish writer. He had to be baptized. Benjamin Disraeli had to be baptized, was baptized to become a member of parliament, right? Uh, there were lots of people who had to go through baptism, famous people who had to go through baptism, and, lot, and, 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 and the Hamoyin Am in, in the community in general, they felt if you wanted to get a job as a civil servant to get a government job, you had to be baptized. And there were communities where 70, 80% of the communities became baptized, not because they changed their beliefs, they didn't suddenly start believing in Christianity, but it was simply an entry permit into this magnificent new world with all its uh, opportunities for wealth and, and knowledge and, and culture. Um, so here you have uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch as a, 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 a community leader, and on one side is this complete and utter uh, 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 sea, this flood of assimilation and conversion. On the other side 
is the attitude of isolationism. A good example, for example, might be a, poly, a contemporary of Samson Raphael Hirsch. When he was in Germany, so you had, for example, in Presburg, you had Rav Moshe Sofer, who was the Khatam Sofer. The Khatam Sofer was the Rosh Hashiva and the Rob of the town of Presburg. And his view was that Chadash Asur Min HaTorah, that anything new that came out of modernity was by definition pasul, was a sign of, of a, a way of life which, which was fatal for people's Jewish life. And that was a perspective that anything that came up out of modernity was by definition to be rejected. It had some very almost strange applications. One of the interesting mega debates that took place in Europe, for example, in the 1830s and 1840s, just to give you a slight uh, uh, instance of this, was when somebody invented a machine for baking matzahs. Now, you understand, from Moshe Rabbeinu until 1830, everybody had only eaten hand-baked matzahs. Suddenly, in the industrial age of the 1800s, there was a machine to bake square matzahs. No one had ever heard of this before. But undoubtedly, most of the posts came from a practical point of view, took the view that these machine matzahs were much easier to monitor to make sure they were not chametz and they were made properly and to control the heat and control the time of production and to make sure that the dough didn't rise. It was the, the kashrut of these matzahs was not in question at all. They were much more, if you like, certainly matzah, not chametz, than the hand matzahs, which were rolled by all sorts of people doing the work and hand making matzahs, and it wasn't so well monitored. So you would have thought it's a magnificent opportunity. And nevertheless, there were a whole group of, of Rabbanim, uh, Rabbi Shalem Kluger from Brody and, and the, 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 sons, the sons of Rabbi Hasidish Rabbanim, who came out and they said, machine matzahs are a sign of apikors. It, it's it's chametz, not because it's a chametz in terms of hilchas matzah and chametz. It's chametz because it, it's a it's a, a foot on a slippery slope into modernity. We don't want to allow the modern world to affect the way we are keeping we are keeping our mitzvot. We are going to eat only hand baked matzahs because machine baked matzahs is treif. It's treif because it's a simon of a treif way of life. And this was a very interesting phenomenon across the board, all sorts of, of different activities. There was, for example, and there still is to this day. So to this day, you will find some people who are really insistent on only having hand-baked matters uh, and, and, and the, without realizing what the debate was in earlier times. There was, for example, uh, issues uh, connected with the reform movement. So here I'd like to speak for one or two minutes about the reform movement, which began in Germany in about 1810 in Hamburg. The, the first reform, uh, what they called a temple, what we used to call a shul, what we still do call a shul. They didn't want to use the word synagogue. They wanted to use the word temple. And I'll explain to you in a minute. To this day, if you go to America, the reform shuls are all called temples. Why is that? And that's because when the reform started, the very first thing they did was, was they wrote their own Siddur. And the first thing they did to the Siddur was they deleted out of it all references to Yerushalayim, to Vesechazena, Eneinu, Vesechazena, to Esemach, David, Avdachom, Herat, Tatzmiach, any reference 
to us wanting to go back to Israel and rebuild Judaism in Israel, they deleted it and they said, no, we are proud Germans. We will be Germans here. We're not waiting for Mashiach. We're not looking to go to Israel. We believe that our future is here and we are Germans. It's true, we're also Jewish and we pray to God, right? But we are Germans. So they, they were the most fiercely anti-Zionist for the whole of the, eight, for the whole of the 19th century. The reform movement was fiercely anti-Zionist. It was only in the 20th century when the reform movement realized that the new Medinat Israel emerging was going to be a secular state that they suddenly started supporting uh, Israel. But actually, the idea of the return to Israel was an anathema to them because it undermined what they perceived as their patriotism as Germans, which for them was their main identity. So they, but they wanted as much as possible to be, and that's why incidentally, they called their synagogue, they called it a temple. What they were saying was there is no temple in Jerusalem. We're not looking for a temple in Jerusalem. We've got a temple in Hamburg. That's what we've got. And that's what, we're, that's what our, our identity is. And that is really, uh, and the reform also was sweeping through Germany at the most unbelievable rate. And in reality, what they were doing was they were undermining all the Yisodei Hadat. In other words, they weren't, a, they weren't converting to, to Christianity, but they were saying our Judaism is a different Judaism. And the, and, and the crucial philosophical point, which they were challenging, which is still true to this very day, is they were challenging emunah in a very interesting way. Let me just speak about the word emunah just for one minute. We often speak about somebody who's got emunah, and we tend to think that having emunah means a belief in God, right? Now that is true, but that's really only a small part of our emunah, because the truth is there are a lot of Christians who believe in God, a lot of Muslims who believe in God, and a lot of non-Jews who believe in God. Believing in God is not a hallmark of Am Yisrael. The Jewish people, the hallmark of Am Yisrael is not, is not only to have a belief in God, but to believe in Torah min Hashemai. That the Torah that we've got is divinely uh, originates, and that we have Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat which comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is not a human creation, but it's a divine creation. And that by, by engaging in mitzvot, we are doing the Ratzon Hashem, we're doing what God wants from us. That concept was completely lost in Reform Judaism. They said, yes, Judaism, the Bible is a book that was written by wise people, inspired people over a few centuries, and they developed a whole new academic field, the, the Wissenschaft, which was what was called the Bible criticism, which is still alive and well in many universities uh, to this very day. If you study Bible studies uh, in Oxford or in Cambridge or in Harvard, or wherever it is, you are studying reform interpretations of the Bible, which does not assume or which rejects the idea of the divine authorship of the Torah. And with that is a total loss of our emunah. A person who loses their emunah in Torah Menashemayim has completely uh, uh, cut himself off at the source of all the ideas of Torah and Mitzvot. Certainly the Yud Gimel Ikrim, the 13 principles of the Rambam, emphasizes first the first few are about belief in God but after that he says our emunah has to be connected to Matan Torah to Torah uh, to Torah Menashemai. In actual fact this week's Parsha in Parsha Shemos 
So Moshe Rabbeinu is told by Akadosh Baruch Hu at the Smet, at the burning bush, he says, I want you to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. So he, so he says, how can I do that? And Rashi explains, what zuchut do they have to be taken out of Egypt miraculously? They have no zuchuyot. They have sunk to a very low spiritual level. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, no, when you come, you will see that when you come out of Egypt, that on this very mountain where you're standing here of the burning bush, that is Har Sinai. And on this mountain, they will receive the Torah. In other words, it's a zuchut not of events which have taken place in the past, but the zuchut al shem ha'atid. This is a, a zuchut, a merit that, that the Jewish people have because what they what they will do in the future. And that, that is really, that was the key to Yitziat Mitzrayim. And in actual fact, uh, the burning bush, the snare, both the Ibn Ezra and the Chizkuni say that the name Sinai is based on the word sne, that the word, the mountain was called Sinai because of the sne, because of the bush in this week's parsha, where Moshe Rabbeinu is told that the all-important moment will be Naseh Venishma. The whole of Yitziat Mitzrayim was only a preparation uh, for Matan Torah, and therefore, coming back to our topic for, for this evening, the, the idea of Torah Min HaShemayim is, is a central concept of the whole of Orthodox Judaism, and it's the red line which divides us, divides orthodoxy from reform, conservative, on the other side of the line. What happened was, just to give you an idea, um, what happened was one of the reform rabbis, a fellow called Ludwig Philipson, decided to write a tra- German translation and commentary of the Chumash um, in the light of reform teachings and Bible criticism. And that that German, German translated Chumash sold over 300,000 copies in the mid 1800s in Germany, just to give you an idea of how many Jews were out there looking to have a, a reformed Jewish identity. In fact, Sigmund Freud writes that he got a present from his father of a Philipson Chumash, by the Chumash translated by this Ludwig Philipson, which today no one's ever heard of. What happened was, interestingly, though, that because he wrote this Chumash, that spurred Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch to write his Chumash, right? So in 1870, Samson Raphael Hirsch wrote his Chumash with his commentary, where one of his major goals of his Chumash is, is to show how the Torah Bichtav and the Torah Balper are all integrated into one, uh, into one system and, and show how the beauty of Torah Balper only enhances our belief in the Torah Bichtav. And I must be honest with you that this, this uh, uh, Hirsch Chumash, which I'm showing you here on the screen, is really an absolute uh, masterpiece a total masterpiece uh, written in about 1870. Uh, interestingly, it was, it was a response to this reform Chumash, but actually it has done us a tremendous favor because of the beautiful ideas which it has, uh, which it has formulated uh, in, in the Chumash. Um, the, the philosophy of Roshim Shemfal Hirsch was as follows. It's true that modernity contains within it all sorts of dangers which threaten our belief which threaten our mitzvot, and that when you go to university, you will meet atheists, you'll meet people who live a promiscuous life, you'll meet people who undermine everything precious to Judaism, but it's up to you to stand firm and to be selective and to take the best 
that modernity has to offer us, it has to offer us lots of benefits, cultural benefits, intellectual benefits, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of culture, all these benefits will enhance our Judaism. We don't need to blank out the modern world. We only need to be selective and to be strong and not be influenced by our environment. And he called this attitude Torah in Derech Eretz. This principle of Torah in Derech Eretz meant that unlike the assimilationists, you didn't have to abandon Judaism in order to be a modern person. And unlike the isolationists, like the Hasim Sofa and the whole Hasidic world, you didn't have to abandon uh, modernity in order to be an Orthodox Jew. You could be a fully uncompromised Orthodox Jew and live fully in the, in the modern world. That the idea that that is possible right, was a chidush of the most amazing proportion. For us today, we all take that for granted, right? I was in yeshiva for 10 years, and I was in university for many years, and I combined my university and my yeshiva training, and for me, that was completely normal. Why? Because Samson Raphael Hirsch led the way. He laid down the pole. Without Samson Raphael Hirsch, every Jew in Europe would have thought, I've got a choice to make. I can either live a shtetl existence, speaking Yiddish, and not reading any of the books and ever becoming involved in any of the professions and be a from Jew and do what God wants, or I can assimilate or convert out and, and abandon Judaism. That was an either-or situation. Hirsch came along and he wrote his books and to tell the Jewish world there is a third option. And the third option is Torah Derech Eretz. It, ne it needs you to be learned, you have to be learned, you have to be aware, you have to be strong, you have to know how to select out of modernity the best elements and combine them in a good way, but that's what God wants from you. The truth is, there was a very interesting book written by the late uh, uh, Norman Lamb called Torah Umada, uh, in which he brings, out, he brings out lots of different versions of Torah and Derecheretz. Because Yeshiva University has its slogan of Torah Umada, which is a variation on the theme. And that book is worth reading. I'm not going through it now at the moment. But it's, it's worth mentioning that, for example, in his book, he shows that Rav Kook, in Rav Kook's writings, he takes Torah and Derech Eretz to a new level. But I won't go into that for the moment. Maybe that's a subject for another, another Shia, Rav Kook and Rav Hirsch, and what their, what the, what their influence uh, was. But certainly... I would say to you as follows, that every Orthodox Jew who has gone to university and involves himself in the modern world and maintains his total commitment to halacha and to emunah, right, is in fact a Hirschian, is in fact a follower of Samson Raphael Hirsch, because he provided that path, which was then at that time, in, in the Eastern Europe, for example, the Hasidic world, and the Litvish Yeshiva world, they considered it laughable. They considered this option of Hirsch laughable. To, to think that you can send young people into the non-Jewish world and expect them not to be influenced by the atheism, the promiscuity, and the a general hefkerut of the, of, of the non-Jewish world and maintain their commitment to Torah and Mitzvah, 
they considered that to be a completely unrealistic and, and unimaginable formula. And therefore they fought against it tooth and nail. Let me give you one little uh, example of a Dvar Torah uh, from the writings of Rav Shimshon Afal Hirsch's uh, Chumash, which is in itself, I think, illustrative of his general uh, philosophy. And that is in, in, in Bereshis uh, chapter 9, the story, of course, is, for, is, is well known, that Noah comes out after the flood, right? And uh, he plants a vineyard, and he, begets, he gets drunk, and he behaves in an undignified way. His son Canaan makes fun of him, and his two other, his son Ham makes fun of him, and his other two sons, Shem and Yefet, they look after him and they protect his dignity. And the story, and what happens then is that Noah gives a type of a, a blessing and a prophetic statement to each one of his three sons. Don't forget, that's all there was in the world at the time. The world had been destroyed by the flood. There was Noah and his wife and the three sons and their wives. And that's all there was. That's all that was left of mankind. So these three sons were the uh, progenitors, the patriarchs of mankind, of the future of mankind. So he says, he first gets starts up and he says, Arur, uh, that Ham, his son, should be cursed. Eved avadim yelechad. He should be a slave to his, to his brothers. Sounds like a curse, not the sort of thing a father would normally do to his son. And it sounds a bit racial, it sounds a bit offensive. And then to his son, uh, 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 um, Shem, uh, he gives a bracha, right? That Shem is the one who understands. Shem is, of course, the father of the, the ancestor of, of Klal Israel. That's where the word Semites comes from. It's from Shem. And, and he gives him a bracha. And then he gives a bracha to Yefet. And he says, Yaf elokim li Yefet, the Yishkon ba'ohole Shem. That's what he said. What is that all about? So very briefly, again, this is not a textual share. I just want to bring this as an illustration of Samson Raphael Hirsch's general philosophy. He says, Yefet and Yaft comes from the word Yofi. It means beauty. It means the aesthetic aspects of life. It means, in a word, culture, literature, music, architecture, the beautiful aspects of the artistic world. That is Yefet. And in fact, Yefet becomes the ancestor of, of, of Yavan. And Yavan is Hellenism. So Hellenism becomes really the, the, the uh, classic expression of Yaft Elohim Yefet, that Yefet had this ability to understand uh, the beauty of culture uh, to its highest degree. Coming back for a minute to Rishim Shonafal here, you must understand that in Europe, Germany was considered to be the zenith of culture, the greatest music, the greatest musicians the greatest art galleries, the greatest architectures, the, the Goethe's and the Schiller's, the literature, and they were the height of culture. I think now today in the post-Holocaust uh, uh, Europe, uh, it's difficult to maintain uh, that, uh, that, that perspective uh, with, with a straight face. But certainly at the time, in the 19th century, that's really what was believed. So they believed that, that in actual fact, so what Hirsch is saying is as follows. The three sons of Noah represents three different types of cultures where all the nations of the world fall under these categories. Ham, which means heat and passion, really, is those people, those nations 
which who worship power and and, and might and self-gratification and, and and the heat of the battle and the heat of the passions that is Khan, right which in itself will lead a person completely astray when he was saying what he meant was that that in order for him to use his passions correctly he has to submit himself to the values of Shem. Shem represents the values of Torah and Mitzvot, the values of Avodat Hashem, the values of living a life in accordance with the way God wants us to live. That is Shem. So when he says that Ham should be an Eved, he means he should be a means to an end. If he allows himself to be subjugated to, to Shem, then he'll be using all his passions uh, for a correct purpose. And the same is true about Yefet. That Yafdel akim leYefet veYishkon Shem. That Yefet should dwell in the tents of Shem means that Shem should provide a tent within which all the benefits of culture, of music, of literature, of science, of art, all those great achievements should come to their full fruition within Shem. What he's doing with these psukim is he is trying to explain that the Torah wants us not to be isolationists, not to be people who reject culture and reject music and reject science, but people who are able to be yishkon to integrate it into the lives and the values of Klal Yisrael. And this really was uh, one of the great um, messages that Samson Raphael Hirsch uh, was giving. In, in the uh, 1830s, he uh, uh, wrote two books which spelled out in greater detail uh, this philosophy of his. The first one was called The 19 Letters. Some of you might have seen the book, The 19 Letters. It's an amazing thing that even today, you know, nearly 200 years later, it's still a relevant book. It was written to address uh, a, a fictional young man who was thinking about abandoning Judaism and assimilating. And he's writing him letters telling him what a privilege it is to be a member of Klal Yisrael and that he's wrong if he thinks that he's only got two options, either to assimilate or to live a, a, a un, uncultured life. He could live a life which was fully cultured and at the same time fully orthodox. And this, this book is an amazing book. Incidentally, my late uh, very good friend, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, wrote a similar book uh, called A Letter in the Scroll. If you haven't read the book, A Letter in the Scroll, go out and read it, right? In actual fact, in England, it was sold under a different title. For some reason, I don't know the publishers. In America, it was called A Letter in the Scroll. In England, it was called Radical Then, Radical Now. But it was a little book, which was also letters written to a young man who was considering leaving Judaism. And in it, he explains the great privilege and the great benefits of being part of the Jewish people. It's one of the most powerful, one of the most powerful outreach books uh, written really in our generation. is Rabbi Sachs's little book called the, uh, A Letter in the Scroll. But it's, it's modeled on Samson Raphael Hirsch's book uh, written 200 years earlier um, in the, uh, of, of the 19 letters. He then went on to write the book Chorev, Chorev is also an absolute masterpiece where he goes through the 613 mitzvot the same way as the Sefer Achinuch and the Rambam did, and he gives each mitzvah a rational 
and philosophical and social meaning and purpose in the most amazing, beautiful way. Again, still readable today, 200 years later, in a very, very beautiful format. Um, he was, he was a, a prolific author. He wrote thousands of articles in the press. And he was, in a sense, a, a, um, in many ways in his writings, he was um, a polemicist. In other words, he was out there fighting against the reformers, fighting against the assimilationists, but also fighting against the isolationists. He was a man who really spelled out very clearly what he believed in and how he wanted to achieve it. And in that sense, he was a man of tremendous, he was a bit of a, uh, sometimes when I read some of his articles, he was a bit of a gladiator. You know, he was out, he was out there at, at, the, at, the, at the cutting edge of orthodoxy, trying to create a new identity for Orthodox Jews that they didn't need to turn their back on European culture in order to preserve their Yahadut. They could be fully, fully accredited uh, uh, Orthodox Jews with Torah and mitzvahs and become even Talmudic Hachonim, while at the same time uh, absorb from uh, the culture around them uh, the, best, the best parts of it, which would only enhance, uh, enhance their life. Now, one of the things that Hashim Shemrafal Hirsch did in 1851 was he started a new kehillah. He started a brand new community because he understood that the, going forward, he had to build not just write books, he had to build an institution which would be the flagship of his hashkafa, which would be the flagship of his uh, principles of life. And he went to Frankfurt am Main which was really predominantly, which had, had a magnificent history of Talmidei Chachamim and, and of uh, uh, um, scholarship and, and of Orthodox Judaism for many, many centuries. But now in the mid 19th century, it was predominantly reform and assimilated and it was almost completely uh, uh, um, lacking uh, a, a a core of Orthodox Jews. He built there a small community, which he called the ERG, the IRG, which I think means the Israelische Religionsgesellschaft, or something along those lines. You'll forgive my German, it's not absolutely accurate. But he built this new community, which was going to be a new model community. And in actual fact, after he built it and he put it together, it became, if you like, a gold standard for a new type of what we might call today modern Orthodox community. In other words, the contrast, if you, some of you might have been to Hasidische Stiebels, in one, some, some of the men here might have occasionally been to a Hasidische Stiebel. Shuls generally, before Shreford Hirsch built his shul, were somewhat uh, haphazard uh, places where people walked in whenever they wanted to and sat wherever they wanted to and either sang with or didn't sing with and they were dressed any way they wanted to. They came in and davened they went out and, and, and they weren't members of the shul. And it, the, the general rule of, of shuls in Europe were along the lines of a shtibel of very uh, um, unstructured uh, tefillah. Hirsch took the view that today in order that Judaism and tefillah is respectable, 
we need a shoe with 100% decorum, 100% original, right? And, they, and he made a shul where they had bylaws. Now, the truth is, if I tell you some of the laws of this shul, you will consider them somewhat, um, somewhat draconian, right? Uh, we, we, could, we couldn't live today with the bylaws that he made in his shul. But amazingly, in mid-19th century Germany, this, these bylaws made this shul into something magnificent. But basically, the, the bylaws said things like, only members of the shul use this shul. If you want to use the shul, you have to be a member. If you're a member, you have your seat with your name in it. You're not allowed to sit anywhere other than the seat which has your name in it. You're not allowed to sit anywhere else, and no one else is allowed to sit on your seat. That is rule number one. Rule number two, a very strict dress code. You've got to, both the men and the women have got to get come to shul dressed exactly in the most dignified, respectable way possible, detailed out. And if they didn't, the gabai would chuck them out of the shul. Right? Thirdly, the tefillah was the, they had a chazan, a professional chazan, who had an operatic type of voice. And it was meant to be, the chazanut was meant to be a spectator sport. You were not allowed to sing with. Singing with was considered to be very common. You sat there like you sat in the Royal Philharmonic Concert Hall listening to an opera. That's how you sat. That was considered dignified in the 19th century. Right? You didn't sing with. Right? You sat in your seat. You were dressed perfectly. And of course, God forbid, no one was allowed to talk during that. Right? Absolutely, that was absolutely impossible, right? And everybody had to pay their membership, and the decorum was was the most unbelievable. And people loved it. People felt, gosh, this is it. Judaism has become respectable. It's not haphazard. It's not hefka. It's not a joke. It's something respectable. It's something important, right? And 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 the 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 uh, the chazanut was at the highest level was at a very good level of music. And when the rabbi spoke, he spoke in German and he spoke beautifully. He gave, he gave a talk, which was like a half an hour lecture uh, in, in, in the highest Hochdeutsch, in the highest cultured uh, German. And this then became like a gold standard of what a community could look like of people who were all Orthodox, but at the same time, they had absorbed from the German culture the dignity and the dignified way of standing before God. And when he spoke to them, he spoke about all the classic Orthodox Torah ideas of what does tefillah mean and how, what does it mean, Shibisi Hashem Negdi Samid, and what does it mean to stand before Akadosh Baruch Hu and Daven. Everything was done absolutely Kadas uh, Ukadim. And of course, the Sidur was absolutely untouchable. Right? You weren't allowed to adjust or amend anything in the Siddur, as opposed to the reform who had completely massacred uh, the Siddur and, and changed all sorts of things uh, left, right, and center. So you had a shul there, which then um, one, one of his uh, colleagues, Samson Raphael Hirsch, wasn't operating completely alone, even though he was the leader of this Hashkafa. One of his colleagues was someone called Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer. Uh, who was the rabbi of the Berlin uh, Adas Yisrael, which was a similar type of shul, which was didn't quite have exactly those 
bylaws, but certainly was built along those sort of lines. He also had another colleague called Rabdovid Svi Hoffman, who was the head of the Rabina, uh, the, the Rabina Seminar, where they were training Rabbanim. They were training Rabbanim to be the next generation of Torah in Derech Eretz rabbis in the, in the, in the, in the Rabina Seminar. Rabbi Hildesheimer, Rabbi Hoffman, and others uh, were uh, training many, many Rabbanim. Just as a footnote, I just want to tell you something interesting that um, I, when I was learning in, in, in Yerushalayim for many years, uh, uh, one of the things I was doing was learning halacha, we're learning psak halacha, and doing what's called shimush, in other words, sitting in with a posek, listening to him uh, ruling on all the questions that came in. And one of the people I sat with was Rabbi Yeshua Neuvet, uh, is the author of the Shmirat Shabbat Kil which became uh, the Shmirat Shabbos, became the classic uh, halachic book of, of the laws of Shabbos. And he was, he had like hours of the day, a couple of hours in the afternoon. We had an open door and people came in and asked questions of all different sorts. And I was able uh, uh, to sit there and listen to him giving answers. And it was a most amazing sort of uh, internship. Um, that you, you hear somebody uh, giving answers, and then afterwards, he would, if I had questions, he would explain to me why he said what he said. Uh, every now and again, he would ask me, what do you think? What, what do you think the answer is here? But what was it, why, why am I mentioning all this? Is because the father of Rav Neuvert was a rob of a big community in Berlin. And his father had studied in the Berlin Rabbina Seminar of Samson Raphael Hirsch, of Rabbi Israel Hildesheim. And he had Samicha. He showed me once the Samicha that his father got from the Berlin Rabbinic College, right, in the 1800s. And here's the interesting thing, that he gets this Samicha, very beautifully worded, a lovely document. And then at the bottom, it says, there's a disclaimer at the bottom. It says, we want to state here very clearly, right, we want to state here clearly, that if this man, to whom we have just now ordained uh, as a rabbi, if he ever, ever steps foot inside a reform uh, uh, shul, a reform synagogue, this, this uh, smicha is retroactively invalid. This smicha is only given on the understanding that he will never set foot inside a reform institution. And it, it was interesting to see that in, in the text. It showed you a little bit of a snapshot of the battles they were fighting at the time. They wanted to create a new uh, uh, generation of Orthodox Rabbanim who would then serve Orthodox communities uh, throughout uh, Europe, who had this principle of Torah and Derech Eretz, who were able to combine the best of, of Orthodoxy uh, together with uh, the best of, of, the, uh, of the local culture. And this is really... Um, What's interesting to me is that this label of Torah and Derech Eretz has become, in my lifetime, unpopular. If you say to people, do you subscribe to Torah and Derech Eretz? They won't jump and say, yes, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful way of life. They won't do that. I'm not quite sure exactly why that is. It's probably the influence of the yeshiva world. But the truth is that in the yeshiva world itself, a large percentage of people who are yeshiva trained, including myself, do eventually go to university and do eventually become qualified and do eventually become professionals. And by doing so, they are, maybe without using the label, 
living a life of Torah and Derech And that was what Shamshurafu al-Hirsh was really um, all about. He was able to fight against the, 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 the waves of assimilation. It was not easy for him. Um, but he had to, at the same time, fight against uh, the reform movement. And had, um, th- this also created a whole different uh, um, phenomenon, um, which was called in Germany the Austritz. The Austritz Gemeinde meant that the general German, German community, the government of Germany, wanted all the Jewish communities to be in one organization, right? Have a general organization of Jewish communities. And Simshrafon Hirsch said, no, I'm not going to be part of any organization where the reformed Jews are also, where the reformed communities are also represented there. That's not for me. As far as I'm concerned, they are not practicing the same religion as I am practicing. Right? And therefore, he institutes what was called the Austrit. The Austrit meant that he was a uh, separatist. He was a separatist in the sense that he wouldn't uh, cooperate in, in any uh, field, social field, a governmental field, with the reform movement, because he saw very clearly the reform movement as the greatest danger uh, to, uh, the, the, to, to Am Yisrael uh, going forward. The reform movement were, were depriving all the Jews who were subscribing to it depriving them of their emunah in Torah min HaShemayim, in the divine origin of the Torah, was depriving them of a commitment to Eretz Yisrael, a commitment to Yerushalayim, all the, all, all the most precious beliefs of the Jewish people were being destroyed by the reform movement. And therefore, while at the same time he was opening the door to science and culture and art and, and professions, and he was encouraging people to combine Torah with a modernity. At the same time, he was fighting this battle against the misrepresentation of Judaism, which the reform movement um, were guilty of. And this was, so you can see that this man was really a, a most amazing, uh, uh, amazingly powerful individual who, who really paved the way for the future. And I think Sina mentioned this in his introduction, for what we might call today modern orthodoxy, of course that term means lots of different things to different people, the various different shades and flavors of modern orthodoxy, but the idea, the underlying idea of modern orthodoxy is that you can li- live a fully uncompromised orthodox life and still live in modernity. That is really the underlying idea, and that is the Hirschian idea. In Ashkenaz, this was created by Hirsch. I would like to add, since this is a Sephardi program, but the truth is in the, in the history of Sephardi uh, 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 orthodoxy, this was not really a new idea, right? As we all know, right? The great Sephardi Rabbonim in the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century were lots of them were scientists, were knowledgeable in many different languages, were, were very well read in non-Jewish philosophies. This, they were able to combine the two in the, in the world in, in the Sephardi world. This was not something new. In Ashkenaz, it was unheard of. In Ashkenaz, if you read Rashi on, on Chumash or Rashi on the Talmud, Rashi never ever quotes a non-Jewish source. He never ever quotes any other language. 
he never ever quotes any non-Jew of any sort, right? He's living in a completely uh, hermetically sealed, and the Baalei Atosfot as well, are living in a hermetically sealed Jewish world, and the non-Jewish world around them, as far as they're concerned, is completely uh, a different planet, right? They were not living an integrated life into the non-Jewish world. But, and that's how Jews lived in Europe until the 19th century. And, the, and then the bombshell hit of the Enlightenment and the Emancipation. And then they had to learn very quickly how to combine orthodoxy with modernity. And that's really the story of Samson Raphael Hirsch, uh, very briefly, in, in a nutshell. Now, I believe I'm giving a second shear on this topic uh, at some point in the near future. And I'll be giving you maybe a, a bit of a deeper insight into some of his Divrei Torah. But this was a general a sketch, really a snapshot of the man in his times. I'm happy to take a few questions if anybody wants to ask anything. Um, over to you, Sina. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Um, uh, you are actually back next Wednesday. Uh, back next Wednesday, two. good. Indeed, okay. indeed. Uh, and, My and pleasure. You're welcome back every week. Because that was uh, fantastic, really, really insightful into a giant of Ashkenaz, a giant of Judaism. So I really, really appreciate that. If we're going to go to a few questions, I must say, uh, in many ways, you saved yourself from an onslaught of Western Sephardim coming to say integration is not Hashian, integration is Western Sephardi, with that last comment that you made. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so you saved a very long Q&A. Okay. But, uh, thank you. Um, we have a question here, I think Rob Sher. Um, I'll read it out, Rob. Uh, hi, Rabbi. Respectfully to Rabbi Hirsch, uh, what do you think Rabbi Hirsch introduced into his Torah in Derech Eretz ideology, which is no longer compatible with the age we live in now? Okay, that's not an easy question to answer. Um, I think that the age we live in now is very much connected to Eretz Israel. And, that, and that's a major element of our life, whether we live in Israel or don't live in Israel. That's not the point. The point is we are connected heart and soul to the land of Israel and the Jewish people living in the land of Israel and the future of Israel. And that is a whole dimension of Judaism that he doesn't connect with. So I think that's probably uh, the single largest aspect of the identity of modern Orthodox Jews today, which he, which he was which he did not uh, um, connect to, and he did not really, uh, wasn't really relevant to him in any way at all. Thank you. If I can quickly ask a question before uh, I sure. get to the audience, I'll steal a question as the host. Um, I, I remember speaking with um, Rabbi Professor Mark Shapiro about Rav Shemshon Rafael Hirsch yes. uh, a couple of years back, and he was very much of the opinion that the Andalusian experience of uh, the Hachamim of Sfar definitely influenced uh, his approach. Have you seen any references to Sephardi Hachamim in Rav Hirsch's works? Because I've looked and I can't find anything. I think Mark Shapiro is speculating. I'm not mm. saying he's wrong. I'm not saying he's wrong, but I think he's speculating. Mm. He, he's saying, look, you know, some sort of of course, knew uh, that, you know, that, that, that the great uh, Sephardi Rabbanim had managed to integrate secular knowledge and science of their time into their lives. Um, but he doesn't really quote them or draw on them, to the best of my knowledge. That's not his overt 
sources of inspiration. No. Thank you. Um, let's go to Giddy in Miami. You can unmute. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for the Shiro. Um, so I have a question, I think. Um, so the Rav said that, um, that Hirsch was really uh, doing something that was wholly different than anyone else at his time, especially in Ashkenaz. Um, but I, I have, from my understanding, and I'm no particular scholar of the Nitziv, but my understanding is the Nitziv did lots of very similar things, um, if to a much lesser extent, where he was quoting outside sources, non-Jewish sources, um, um, more, he quotes Mendelssohn a few times, um, and there's actually a big controversy with, uh, with uh, certain people hiding certain uh, manuscripts. But it seems to me that it seems to me that there's something going on in that age, in that particular time in history, um, where Rav Hirsch and Siv were both seeming, which, which Ashkenaz, people in Ashkenaz were more open towards uh, outside information. Maybe the Rav can let me know if I'm off, off base here about the period of history leading into the um, synthesizing that Rav Hirsch did in the Mitziv did as well. Okay, I'm pleased you mentioned the Nitziv, and the Nitziv is really a subject for a whole talk on himself, um, a very, very fascinating individual. And you're right if you say that the Nitziv did uh, open his door occasionally to people who had a broader knowledge, but there's no question at all that the Nitziv uh, lived in a much more uh, um, uh, isolationist environment, and that the Velozhny Yeshiva certainly did not advocate or recommend or tolerate any other secular studies. So the right. Nativ, the Nativ uh, who was the head of the Belozhin Yeshiva, uh, was certainly part of the uh, Litvish uh, Yeshiva uh, tradition, of which I'm also part of that tradition, so I know it quite well. So I would say to you that the general theme of the Litvish Yeshivas towards modernity was absolutely not and a synthesis attitude. They spoke about themselves as a tevat noach. They viewed themselves as a as Noah's ark, where everybody around was drowning. If you wanted to not drown in the world of modernity and atheism and promiscuity and reform and assimilation, then you've got to come into the yeshiva. The yeshiva is the Noah's ark. So they were involved in really providing a refuge for people who would otherwise be uh, completely but lost. Is, is it possible that, that a lot of that has to do with the, where they were, whereas Rav Hirsch was in Germany, which was really the center of the Enlightenment, whereas the Nitziv was far away. The Nitziv had to deal with other people around him. Now, I've heard some scholars um, who, have, who have put forth the uh, hypothesis that the Nitziv was more radical than we like to give him uh, credit for. Okay, and there, there the fact of time was there. scholarship. You're, you're absolutely right. right. There is and the fact that we, we now look at them through the, the eyesight of Brisk, and it, people like to think of Brisk and Velozhin as one thing because of the influence of Rukhaim, but also the it was farther out. So maybe there's something in that time period specifically in that okay. 18, late, mid-1800s. What, what, what you're saying, there is some truth to what you're saying, but I think that uh, you can't compare at all the, the extent of Hirsch's um, uh, view of synthesis of Terem Derech Eretz uh, with uh, uh, the Nativ, who was really a Litvisha Rosh Yeshiva, who was indeed more open, let's put it that way, he was more open. Uh, somebody here made a comment to the effect that, in fact, Hirsch, in many ways, was very critical of the Ramba. Uh, maybe that's a topic I will look at a little bit in the next year. 
in my next chair, I'll mention that. Uh, because he did feel that the Rambam overdid it. The Rambam allowed the non-Jewish sources of his ideas to creep too deeply into his Torah thinking. Uh, okay, so that's, that's, that's a critical view of the Rambam, where, which, which is worth thinking about. So Rav Hirsch was certainly aware of the great Sfaradi Rabbanim, um, but he was, he was plotting a different course completely. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you. Question from Gil. You can unmute. Hi, Rob. I thank you very much for the uh, inspirational and very informative share. Um, it seems that um, the approach that a lot of the Rabbanim took, both on the Sephardic side and on the Ashkenazic side, were heavily, if not almost entirely, influenced by their surroundings. Um, for example, we had a sure last week about how um, the Sephardic approach to um, dealing with uh, community issues is to view the community as more of a family as opposed to like a business and to, to be extremely inclusive. But that wouldn't necessarily have worked in a place that was very heavily influenced by the Enlightenment because that would have maybe been very damaging to the community. So my question is basically... Are, the, are, are these approaches, uh, from your perspective, entirely based on outside factors, or are there like inherent um, religious, I guess, or Torah-based themes outside of time that, um, let's say, Rav Hirsch or even on the on the Sephardic side are being used? Okay, um, that's a complex question. It's a good question. It's a, good, it's a complex question, of course. Uh, every everybody lives within a certain social context, right? But I would say to you, if you read Hirsch, he was firmly in the classical Orthodox tradition that the ideas that he was teaching were totally uh, pure Torah ideas. It is true that he had to apply them in a different circumstances. In other words, the art of rabbinic life, I can tell you this from experience, is to know uh, how to take the timeless principles of, of, of Torah and Halacha and apply them in modern circumstances. In other words, modernity gives us today a different society than existed 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, it was different than 100 years ago. And the society Hirsch had to deal with, he, he knew his society. And he knew that in order uh, to really make Torah intelligible, to his society, he needed to frame it in a particular way. But I don't think it's true to say that he was influenced. I don't think his, the Torah ideas that he was teaching were the timeless Torah concepts, uh, which were, were taught also in the Hasidic world and in the Lithuanian world and in the Sephardi world. Only he had a particular battle to fight and he had a particular society that he needed to deal with. And like today, for example, the, the halachic authorities today in Israel have to deal with a society that is largely irreligious. How does one practice Orthodox Judaism in a context of an irreligious society? Um, how does that work exactly? I was looking recently at a question uh, raised by Ravadi Yosef, which he speaks at length about a situation where to do a Brit Milah on the eighth day, right? That, so that is, is common practice 
even if it falls on Shabbat, right? You, the, the, the mitzvah of Brit Milah overrides the Shabbat. But what if that Brit Milah is taking place in a chiloni, in an irreligious context, such that uh, a couple of hundred people are going to drive on Shabbos to the Brit Milah? Maybe we should postpone the Brit Milah to Sunday, right? Do the Brit Milah a day later in order to prevent um, uh, all the chilul Shabbos. Now, that's not the sort of question that a rabbi 100 years ago would have had, or 200 years ago. In other words, each, only bringing it up as an, as an illustration, that each rabbi has to deal with the unique features of his own society. Hirsch's society was a group of people who loved the German culture, who believed that the German culture was something wonderful, and when faced with a choice, are you going to embrace the culture and reject Judaism or embrace Judaism and reject the culture, they were all assimilating and rejecting Judaism. And he was, he, he, he was teaching, this is not necessary. There is an approach which blends together the best of Jewish life with the best of the cultural, of German culture, and you don't need to give up anything at all. You just need to be learned and be strong. So I, I, I would disagree with you that he was influenced by society, I would agree with you that he had to develop unique uh, ideas and, and techniques to, to deal with a very difficult uh, uh, social reality. That's what I would say. Rabbi, do you have time for two more questions? One yes, more question? Is that okay? We'll do sure. one quickly for, as, a, as, a, as a text here. Uh, Simon Montague asks, as Western Sephardim, so Spanish and Portuguese Sephardim, to whom combining Torah with knowledge from the wider world is not a new idea. What can we learn from Rav Hirsch? I mean, this is a positive inquiry, not dismissively. What can we learn from Rav Hirsch? Well, uh, I, I, that's what I've been speaking about for the last hour. And what we can learn from Rav Hirsch is um, that the, uh, the culture in which we live has positive features, but at the same time, um, uh, these features are dangerous for us and not to underestimate the dangers of mixing. If, if, if you go to university and your, and your close friends are all atheists who make fun of anything Jewish, you will find it very difficult after a while to maintain your uh, Torah Jewish beliefs. If you're surrounded by people who live very promiscuous lives, you'll find it very difficult to exercise the self-control uh, necessary uh, to keep the halakha. This is not, uh, and if you read here, should you understand what he was doing, he was really alerting everybody to the dangers of the culture, but what he was saying was something beautiful. He was saying, yes, these are dangers. You must go in with your eyes open and know the dangers of the culture you're getting into, but at the same time, you should know that the culture has a lot to offer us. Science and culture uh, and, and the aesthetics of literature, music, uh, it has a refinement on the soul, and, and, that's, and that's something that we can get, and which is good for us, and which is compatible uh, with, with, uh, with uncompromised halachic life. That's really the point. Thank you, Margaret. I believe you have a question. Thank you. Um, having grown up in Munkshul, which has got to be the natural follow-on from the um, from the Frankfurt Gemeinder, um, I, I could just tell all my Sfadi colleagues and friends here 
that it is exactly as Rabbi Kimchi says, we had a dress code. We were told after we were 12 that we had to wear hats to shul. We should learn that. The music aspect is very interesting because I believe in, in uh, Rav Hirsch's time, there was wonderful church music going on. And so there was a great posse of musicians who wrote specifically uh, Jewish music. Um, there's Mombach, there, there are quite a few of them. And there's a big repertoire. And it's so that the Jew would feel at home in his synagogue, as well as the Christian would feel at home in his church, Lahavdil, I might say, so that they wouldn't feel compromised on, on having their Sabbath service. And that goes on in, in shul today. I know that in Royal Shul in Washington Heights, I know in Monk Shul, not so much today anymore, because we were three or four Rabbonim removed from Rabbi Monk. But it's true, we had a wonderful cousin. And, but, you know, it, there was very little singing with, it was listening to. And um, I know that um, I was, it's very interesting, everything that Rabbi Kilki said, because on Monday, we had a talk from Rabbi Nitzvora Halevi. And she was saying exactly that, that in the, um, in the Mizrah communities, particularly, for instance, in Egypt and in where the Rambam was, and these places where the Jew was not frightened of being part of a world because he was confident in his own religion, and therefore he could afford to be in a multicultural world. And the well, reason... You haven't seen that. You have a first-hand testimony that the spirit of uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch's ear, Ger, is still alive and well in Dolder's Green. There you go. Yes. Well, it's true. I mean, Rabbi Breuer was my uncle, so he was married right. to my grandsister. So, there we I mean, go. There we go. Absolutely. Yeah, you know. Absolutely. But the Auschwitz commander that you spoke about, it wasn't only against, it wasn't only for the enclave of these Jews, it was also Polish Jews weren't allowed in, Hasid, no, Hasidic. That was not what the Auschwitz meant. Auschwitz meant not joining together with the reform. That's what it meant. Uh, Auschwitz wasn't, it's true, there were certain uh, ideas to, to keep it culturally uh, separate, but that's not what Auschwitz meant. Okay, Sinan, you see okay. that that's uh, this is some that, a selection of people's responses to this to this uh, era. But yes. I, I personally find a very fascinating uh, um, uh, period of Jewish history, which was very formative for the way we live today. Absolutely, absolutely, Hakam, thank you so so much. I'm sorry about everyone else who's got their hands up and have got comments and questions. Um, it's almost uh, it's almost midnight, I believe in. Uh, uh, Israel. Quarter to so, it's quarter to 12 for me, yes, that's true. I've had, a, I've had a long day. There you but go. I must say thank I've enjoyed so this much, very Rav. much. I look forward to next Wednesday. Yes, see you then. Thank you, Rav, and thank, thank you all for being here. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.